Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Al Franken, Lachaud, On the Media, Rachel Maddow, and the Young Turks. I, I like Lauren's analogy that he looks like a guy whose uh, can- series has been canceled and he has nine shows left to do. And and he actually kind of – I'm just figuring out how screwed he is because this is all based on stuff he's already done. I mean, obviously, but it's, it's, it's on – I remember when he went to war, I remember a lot of commentators saying, well, he's betting his presidency on this war. And he kind of did. And um, – they still won't admit their mistakes. I can't believe it. I saw Condi Rice on Meet the Press. And I want to play a couple clips. The first one, Russert says that uh, in addition to seeing a lot of violence on their TV screens, and that's why uh, Condi says, oh, they're, that's why Americans are down in the war, because they're seeing a lot of violence on their screens. And he says, no, well, they've also seen a lot of uh, misjudgments on their TV. And then she says this. Undoubtedly, Tim, there are many things that could have been done differently and I'm certain could have been done better. But when you're involved in an enterprise this big and this complicated, uh, there are going to be misjudgments. The real question is, do you adjust when you see different situation on the ground? Exactly. And this is a crime of this administration, which is they haven't adjusted and they did not adjust. There was years when Rumsfeld would say there's not an insurgency, literally wouldn't say there was an insurgency. They did not adjust. Now, listen uh, to this. Let's, let's play the next one. But there are also some misjudgments that were not made. There were those who said that it would be best just to uh, overthrow Saddam Hussein and then put in an Iraqi strongman who could govern. That would have been a disaster for the progress of the Middle East as a whole and for a democratic foundation for, for the Middle East. Who said that? Who said we should overthrow and put a strong man in? Just the nuttiest nuts in the neocons. Richard Pearl basically said that last week when he was on our show. Right. No one, none of us were saying, no one was saying that. What's she talking about? That's a straw man, my friends. Now, listen to this. This makes my blood boil. Then she continues. There were those who said uh, the Iraqis will, will really never be able to, to do this. Let's go in with a huge footprint and do, leave nothing to the Iraqis. Wow. Isn't that disgusting? She's now saying she, she, she won't say that we didn't send enough troops. She's saying the people who said to send more troops were saying there are those who said the Iraqis will never be really able to do this. That's not what they were saying. They were saying you have to secure the place first. Play that again. Play that again. There were those who said uh, the Iraqis will, will really never be able to, to do this. Let's go in with a huge footprint and do, leave nothing to the Iraqis. What? We didn't send enough troops, lady. Nobody who said send in more troops said it was because that the Iraqis will never be able to do this. No, they, they said, said it because we needed to secure the country. And because they said some Iraqis may loot. <laughs> and they were right. Or misbehave. And they ways. were right. And, yeah. And if she won't cop to this now, it's time to get rid of her, too.
the Haditha situation alluded to at the top of today's broadcast brought this from the new Prime Minister of Iraq, Prime Minister Nouri Kamal al-Maliki. He lashed out at the American military on Thursday, denouncing what he characterized as habitual attacks by troops against Iraqi civilians. Countries' leaders also said they would demand American officials turn over their investigative files on Haditha. The Iraqi government would conduct its own inquiry. That's going to be good. In his comments, Prime Minister Maliki said violence against civilians had become a, quote, daily phenomenon by many troops in the American-led coalition who, quote, do not respect the Iraqi people. Continuing to quote him, they crush them with their vehicles and kill them just on suspicion, he said. This is completely unacceptable. Attacks on civilians will play a role in future decisions on how long to ask American forces to remain in Iraq. Was he unusual for a government that depends deeply dependent on American forces to keep some form of order? Also a sign of the growing pressure on Maliki, whose coalition includes Sunni Arabs who are enraged. That's odd for Iraqis to be enraged. Enraged by news of the killings in Haditha. Not saying they shouldn't be. I'm just saying, you know. But maybe he didn't say that. On Friday, White House Press Secretary Tony Snow said Maliki had told U.S. Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad that he had been misquoted. But Snow was unable to explain what Maliki told Khalilzad he had actually said or how he had been misquoted. And at another news conference on Friday, Maliki said, This case happened as a mistake and a violation. There should be a correction for this fault and the violation. We correct the fault and keep the basic agreements under which the forces are here. At the same press conference, U.S. Ambassador Zalmay Khalizad said, quote, we will let the world know what the investigation reveals. So somebody put something on somebody's windpipe there, sounds like. But now news of the new Iraq. This from uh, another British newspaper, The Telegraph, a conservative newspaper, reporting on Iraq's creeping Talibanization. Militants visited falafel vendors. Attention, Bill O'Reilly. Falafel vendors a fortnight ago, that's two weeks ago, telling them to pack up their stalls by this week or be killed. Falafel apparently is going the same way as alcohol, pop music, and foreign films labeled theologically impure by the country's growing number of Islamic zealots. The closure stalls or be killed ultimatum seemed so odd that at first most laughed it off until two of them were shot dead as they sold their falafel. I said I was just feeding the people, said one, but they said there were no falafels in Muhammad the Prophet's time, so we shouldn't have them either. He said, continuing, I felt like telling them there were no Kalashnikovs in Muhammad's time either, but I wanted to keep my life. Falafel vendors are blacklisted while their colleagues are allowed to continue selling kebabs or Western-style pizzas and burgers. This remains a mystery. Some suspect it's because a taste for falafels is one of the few things that unites Jewish and Arab communities in Israel. It is, however, just one of many Islamic edicts to hit Baghdad in recent weeks, prohibiting everything from the growing of goatees to the sale of mayonnaise, because it is allegedly made in Israel. Even the Arab addiction to cigarettes is being challenged with insurgents declaring smoking bans in at least one 
Sunni district of Baghdad. We already reported last week on the coach and two players of Iraq's tennis team being shot for wearing shorts. Another group of traders to feel the new Talibanists' unexpected wrath is Baghdad's ice merchants, who sell large chunks of ice for storing food and chilling drinks. City of constant power, tuck, power cuts and sizzling temperatures, the service they provide is a little short of essential. But they, have too, have fallen afoul of the claim that their product was not a feature of life during Muhammad's time. One, a 19-year-old ice seller, thought the threats were too ludicrous to be true until it was too late. He laughed. He thought it was impossible they would kill him. They came back two days later and shot him dead, along with three other ice sellers nearby. Barbers have been inundated with young men anxious to shave off their goatees. Last month, a 17-year-old was allegedly killed for wearing one, which Islamists deem a Jewish style of facial hair, ladies and gentlemen. Goatee, the goatee, a Jewish style of facial hair. The new Iraq, and there's more, because where's that good news? This uh, hardline religious crackdown says the Times of London uh, involves men in black, a Taliban-style militia waging war against the urban middle class, organized, according to the Times of London, owned by Rupert Murdoch, by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq. New rules, among the new rules proclaimed by... uh, an emir. Women cannot drive. Women cannot go out after midday. Women and men are not allowed to go out and walk together. They must walk separately. The rules are enforced by gentlemen who drive around in cars and others in, in Sunni areas that Zarqawi has declared are his. Says one resident, if they see someone breaking the rules, they shoot them. The men in black have turned women into virtual prisoners in their homes. Quote, at first we were more afraid of bombs, but now we were more afraid of getting killed for what we are wearing, says one. I used to wear jeans or short skirts. We didn't have to worry. They're not even allowed to display underwear in shops anymore. The atmosphere is becoming ever more oppressive. Men came to one woman's house and told her she could not drive anymore. Her father has to drive her to the lectures at the same university where she drove to class as an undergraduate. Last month, two teenage girls were dragged off the street in the Amaria district. When they emerged several hours later, their heads had been shaved, their violation not wearing a hijab. Not a hijab, a hijab headscarf. Militants issued a warning that in future women walking down the street without a hijab faced death. This is going on in the most affluent Sunni neighborhoods. Women have no legal recourse. The police do nothing, even if something happens in front of their eyes, says a woman politician who did not want her name used because she and her family have been targeted. She has survived an assassination attempt, but two relatives were murdered because of her job. A female prominent engineer refused threats to stop working because she wanted to help rebuild her country. A fundamentalist gang broke into her home and shot her. Said the politician, the police don't investigate because they're afraid. 
The Americans are too scared of roadside bombs, so when they go out, they accomplish their mission and return directly to base. They don't see anything. Iraqi women are now dependent on the men in their family. One young Iraqi woman who writes a blog described her humiliation when she tried to return to her job as a computer network administrator. Quote, my former manager said females weren't welcome and told me in not so many words to go home. Now to go out, she must take two preferably large male relatives. She makes up reasons why she must go shopping. And always the question comes back, she says, but do you have to go out and buy it? Can't I get it for you? No, you can't, I reply, because the kilo of eggplants I absolutely have to select with my own hands is just an excuse to see the light of day and walk down a street. It feels, she adds, like we've gone back 50 years in new Iraq, ladies and gentlemen. The article first appeared in Time magazine in March of this year, and it broke the story of an incident in November of 2005. Allegations that Marines in the Sunni stronghold of Haditha, Iraq, murdered Iraqi civilians to avenge the death of one of their own in an IED explosion. The original article placed the number of civilian deaths at 15, a figure that has since been upped to 24. The article spurred two military investigations. One will determine what happened and whether the incident was covered up, and the second will weigh whether criminal charges should be brought. For the military and the U.S. government, Haditha is still an open case. But for the press, it wasn't too soon to compare it to an earlier atrocity. Here's Fox News Channel's John Gibson. My Lai, the name of the place in South Vietnam where a massacre occurred, a massacre carried out by American troops. For many people, the entire war in Vietnam came down to those two words, My Lai, and one more, massacre. Same thing is about to happen in Iraq, and this time the name is Haditha. The specter of My Lai has been raised many times this week, and it came up three years ago when we first spoke to then-Major Robert Bateman about the process of embedding journalists, then new. Bateman, who is a military historian, is now a lieutenant colonel in the Army, recently returned from a year in Iraq. He joins us now in his role as an historian and not as an official spokesperson. Bob, welcome back to the show. Thank you. So what was the impact of Milai in 1970, and what can we learn from that experience? Today, we all look at Milai as, okay, this is the horrible thing, and, and it was universally condemned. And definitely, it was universally condemned by everybody who was opposed to the war. But even as late as 1970, there was a significant percentage of the population which was not opposed to the war and saw the trumpeting, as they called it, of Milai as something that was being done as a political stunt. And there was pro-Lieutenant Callie songs and movements and counter-protests, disturbing as that is in hindsight. Milai polarized the United States. A lot of people took what was a massacre, a failure of the military, and turned it into a political litmus test. Now, when we first spoke with you back in 2003 at the beginning of the Iraq War, this is what you told me. There were only about 70 accredited reporters 
in all of South Vietnam. That was more than enough to change the course of American history and American public opinion. But it wasn't enough to stop things like My Lai. So are you suggesting that embedding journalists with troops would somehow diminish the possibility for atrocities? I think it can't be helped, but they would be greatly diminished. Three years later, after Abu Ghraib and now Haditha, would you reconsider what you said then? I would not reconsider it. I still think the embedding program was and is a large success. My only caveat would be that when we first talked, there were a whole lot more reporters hundreds upon hundreds of reporters. But we're back to sort of the way it was in Vietnam, where you've got 70 or 100 or 150 reporters trying to cover the war. Do you think that having reporters at Haditha might have changed things? Yes. Let me illustrate it with an example from the, the Second World War. Winter of 1944, the Germans launched a massive surprise attack that has become popularly known as the Battle of the Bulge. During that attack, a German column of SS troops committed a massacre of American prisoners near a small Belgian town called Malmedy. A couple of the men managed to escape and several days later made it back to U.S. lines. and The word started spreading like wildfire. Not long after that, when U.S. troops went on the offensive all along the line, you would have expected the number of German prisoners taken to skyrocket. The numbers don't support that. I've had several veterans who've come into my class when I was teaching at West Point. When I said, well, what was your reaction when you heard about Malmedy? The veterans standing there, not batting an eye, said, oh, we just really didn't take prisoners after that. Well, we'd take prisoners, but they wouldn't make it back to battalion. No reporters reported that? No. What would you like to see the media do in cases like Haditha? We won't know for some time what happened at Haditha. But I think that the media has already provided an invaluable service. It appears that Haditha was not being investigated until Time magazine brought forward to officers at the multinational forces Iraq headquarters. And when they saw that report, they said, you know what, there's something here to be looked into. In other words, Time magazine and journalism provided exactly the service that it is always saying that it does, but which many people dispute. Um, I think it's a classic case. This goes in the win column for American journalism as far as uh, being a watchdog. So as far as you're concerned, the more media, the better. Yeah, that's my position. But then I tend to take a long-term view. Well, let me throw one more question at you. Do you think the media lost us the Vietnam War? No, we lost the Vietnam War. United States Army and the Marine Corps particularly, with help from the Navy and the Air Force. But it is still widely believed in the military that it's the media that lost the war. It is something that I continually fight against with you know, my discussions with peers, with the things that I write in, in our professional journals. My profession is, and has been since at least Vietnam, afraid of yours. Bob Bateman, thank you very much. Thank you. Lieutenant Colonel Robert Bateman is in the U.S. Army, and he's author of No Gun Re, a military history of the Korean War. Something good.
said yesterday that President Bush learned of reports that U.S. Marines may have killed Iraqi civilians in Haditha only after reporters started asking questions about it. Press Secretary Tony Snow said the president was first briefed about the events in Haditha only after a Time magazine reporter made the call to ask about it. Time magazine broke the story in March that the Pentagon was investigating a dozen Marines for possible war crimes. Now, I'm going to say something a little controversial here, but it is something that has been bugging me and that I think is worth considering with an open mind. Did you ever think that maybe the whole war on terror thing isn't really a war. I mean, it certainly looks like a war from our side, with the military being deployed and soldiers wearing the American flag on their shoulders, uh, being being killed and being wounded. Um, but the other side in this supposed war isn't anything like what we're fighting for, the way that we're fighting it, right? It isn't an army that, that's representing a country in any specific or declared way. I mean, there are Iraqis and Afghanis who are, and Afghans who are, who are resisting U.S. occupation, and there are bomb makers and suicide attackers and snipers and saboteurs who are taking shots at American and Western interests whenever and wherever they can. They're attacking Muslims who represent Western influence in the Islamic world. They are sowing violence and chaos in Muslim countries hoping that hardline theocratic conservative religious leaders will give will gain power from the chaos it's a war from our perspective but what is it from the other side is it a war and do we understand this the way we understand battles between armies Fawaz Jirjis is the author of Journey of the Jihadist, Inside Muslim Militancy. He's also the Christian A. Johnson Chair in Middle Eastern Studies and International Affairs at Sarah Lawrence College. Fawaz Jirjis, it's spelled G-E-R-G-E-S. He joins us from Sarah Lawrence this morning. Fawaz, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Do you believe that the U.S. Uh, really understands Muslim militancy? Well, I think, uh, uh, thank you for your really highly critical introduction. Mm. There's a great deal of distortion and simplification and misunderstanding about the threat that the United States faces. Uh, how many Americans know that, in fact, there is a war raging within the militant movement or the so-called jihadist movement? In my book, as you suggested, uh, Journey of the Jihadist Inside Muslim Militancy. This is not an argued book. It's a book, really, I tell the story uh, of the jihadists or the militants in their own words. I let them express their own biases, grievances, fears, and prejudices. That is really, I don't argue, I show. And one of the major conclusions I reach in this particular book, which really has taken me, I've been writing this book since 1998, hmm. is that there is a civil war raging within the militant movement. In fact, uh, September 11, the attacks on the United States uh, not only reflect mutations and dramatic shifts within the jihadist movement, in fact, the attacks on the United States were a product of the civil war that really has been raging within the militant movement since the late 1990s. Is, is, is there a goal or, or a set of goals that, that unifies jihadists, even if there are different sects between them and divisions between them? Is there one thing that they all want? I, I mean, I think this is, this is an, another great question. I mean, I think when we say the war on terror, I mean, first of all, uh, we, we, we have not defined what the war on terror, the so-called war on terror. Mm. If you say the military campaign against al-Qaeda, you're absolutely correct. Al-Qaeda 
has systematically, since the mid-1990s, has tried to attack and inflict casualties on the United States. I mean, I think there is one thing unites all al-Qaeda members, all al-Qaeda ultra-militants, is to really bleed the United States and force the United States out of the Muslim world. But if you're talking, remember here, al-Qaeda represents one element, one small element within the larger the jihadist movement. What the United States really has done since 9-11, not only to say this is the war against al-Qaeda, which is very legitimate because the al-Qaeda targeted uh, and attacked the United States since the mid-1990s, the United States said basically this war is against all Islamists. Uh, all mainstream Islamists, all militants, even the ones who did not target the United States on 9-11. In fact, the overwhelming majority, not only of Islamists, but also of the jihadists, fundamentally disagree with al-Qaeda and its decision to attack the United States on 9-11. And to answer your question very bluntly, no. Militants are deeply divided among themselves. The overwhelming majority of militants, and this is good news for Americans to realize, this is not to say, as you suggested, al-Qaeda is not dangerous. Of course it's bloody dangerous. But militants and jihadists are deeply divided. There is no one thing that unites militants and jihadists except probably the establishment of an Islamic state in uh, the Muslim world. In case you're just joining us, our guest is Fawaz Jerjas, who's the author of Journey of the Jihadist, Inside Muslim Militancy. And Fawaz, when you say that 9-11 was the product of divisions within the jihadist movements, uh, within, the, within that community, that there was a civil war going on and that 9-11 could be understood as a product of that, what was Osama bin Laden, what were al-Qaeda trying to accomplish with the attack on 9-11 uh, in the context of the broader uh, arguments and divisions within among the jihadists? Another really great question. Thank you for, for asking the question because, I mean, in, in the book itself, in my book, Journey of the Jihadists, I identify three generations of jihadists. I follow the journey of three generations. In their own words, again, the first generation, the pioneers or the founding fathers of the jihadists, which was really born in the 1970s and 1980s and 1990s, the primary target of the pioneers, the founding fathers of the first generation, was what I call the near enemy local Arab and Muslim governments. They wanted to topple the pro-Western secular governments in the Muslim world and establish Islamic State. They were not interested in the far enemy, either the West or the United States. The second generation, which I follow the journey of the second generation in the book, and that's Al-Qaeda generation or the Afghan Arab generations. And ironically here, the second generation from 1980 up to 1990 was in the same tranches as the United States itself. Remember, we were fighting the evil empire, the Soviet Union, which invaded Afghanistan in uh, 1980. And I think the second generation decided to target the United States after 1991, because, as you know, the United States basically intervened in the Gulf War in 1990-91 and permanently stationed troops uh, in uh, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia being the birthplace of the Prophet Muhammad. So the second generation shifted gears and decided to attack the United States, not only because it wanted to punish the United States for stationing permanent troops in Saudi Arabia, the birthplace of uh, Islam, but also in order to hijack the jihadist movement 
Al-Qaeda and in particular Osama bin Laden, Ayman Zawahiri, wanted to basically hijack the entire jihadist movement and say to Muslim community, listen, we have a huge enemy. We have the, the, the so-called uh, the head of the snake, the United States. By attacking the United States, Ayman Zawahiri and Osama bin Laden wanted the United States to lash out angrily against the Muslim community and have what you might call a war of cultures or civilization between the United States and the Muslim world. So in this particular sense, the reason why Osama bin Laden and the second generation attacked the United States was to basically gain credibility in the eyes of the Muslim community because they realized uh, I mean, long in 1998 that the United States was likely to lash out angrily, in their words, against the Muslim community and thus make the Al-Qaeda generation the vanguard of the Muslim Ummah and thus gain credibility in their eyes. And also to advance their long-term goal of trying to unify Muslims who more or less agree with them around the, around the world against the West as opposed to fighting among themselves and fighting, as you said, the near enemy. Well, given that consequence and given that strategy heading into the attack on 9-11, if that's what they wanted to do, if that's what they wanted to accomplish, what other choice did the United States have in terms of how to retaliate? Another great question. I mean, many people don't realize that 9-11 was a disaster for Al-Qaeda. Remember Al-Qaeda, and again, I show in this book by following the three generations. The first generation, the pioneers generation, the second generation is Al-Qaeda generation, and of course the third generation is the Iraq generation. That We'll talk about it in a minute. Mm. In fact, what happened on 9-11, the overwhelming majority of militants, and remember we're talking about a highly militant movement, realized that 9-11 was a disaster. Here you're really unleashing the armada, the greatest power in the world against the Islamists, and again by interviewing militants, hundreds of militants, most of them said to me, listen, this was a disaster because the United States went really for overkill against the Islamist movement. And in fact, by 2002, Al-Qaeda was in a coma. Al-Qaeda was not only militarily crippled because of the attacks by the international community, but was internally encircled. That is, if the overwhelming majority of militants disagreed with Al-Qaeda, you can imagine the reception that Al-Qaeda received in the Muslim community as a whole. Of course, by 2003, when the United States decided to declare an all-out war against, I mean, terror and invaded Iraq, Iraq was one of the most, I mean, important, pivotal theaters for Al-Qaeda. Iraq, the Iraq war was a godsend event for Al-Qaeda. It revived Al-Qaeda. It supplied Al-Qaeda with ideological ammunition and uh, military recruits. And what the war in Iraq has done, and this is what, what's tragic and what's sad, in fact, it has created a new generation of jihadists. Remember, I talked about two generations. The first is the pioneers. The second is Al-Qaeda generation. Mm-hmm. Now we have a new generation in the making, and the very raison d'etre of this generation is the American military presence uh, uh, and uh, occupation of Iraq. And the invasion of Iraq and the ongoing occupation of Iraq is is, is the political miracle that revived al-Qaeda after nearly uh, killing it off after uh, the events of 9-11. The question is that what could we have done? Mm. If my reading uh, of this particular situation, and again, I don't argue this particular uh, I mean, point in the journey of the jihadists. I interview militants and jihadists from across the ideological spectrum. I mean, there was a civil war. The civil war that began in the late 1990s escalated after 9-11. Uh, 
I mean, 20 books, almost 20 books were written by militants, hundreds of articles attacking al-Qaeda mm. in the strongest possible terms, instead of really a flow of, of, of recruits to al-Qaeda after 9-11, there was just a trickle of volunteers to Afghanistan. And here you have the United States going to the heart of the Arab and Muslim world. And this is really regardless of what we think of the war itself. That's not the question. We can really have differing views on whether the United States should have really invaded Iraq or not. What has happened as a result of our actions in Iraq is that our actions, unfortunately, have produced the opposite results from the intended consequences, and it seems to me now, based on the interviews I've done, is that there is a new generation in the making, and guess what here? The Iraq generation seems to me bloodier than the second generation. Can you believe it? Mm. That the Abu Mas'ab Zarqawi, Zarqawi, who is the Al-Qaeda lieutenant in Iraq, is much more brutal than the Afghan Arab generation. Even Ayman Zawahiri. Al-Qaeda number two and Osama bin Laden are saying to Zarqawi, their lieutenants in Iraq, slow down. Uh, your actions are inflicting a great deal of damage on the jihadist movement. It seems to me there is not only mutation, but there is also further militarization of the jihadist movement. And this is why now we are really witnessing a new fault line taking place in Iraq. And one would hope that really what the, whatever the United States does is to really try, try to find ways to extract its forces, I mean, to find gradual, orderly ways to extract its forces from Iraq before this generation, before the Iraq generation, becomes deeply embedded and consolidated in this, I mean, in the heart of the, of the world of Islam. Remember? Certainly. And the, in, the, in, the, in order to do that, we need to understand the effect that we are having on the jihadist movement by being there. Uh, Fawaz Jarjus, we're out of time, and I have to stop you there, and I'm sorry to have to do it because it's a fascinating subject and a fascinating book, and I thank you for joining us today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Fawaz Jarjus is the author of Journey of the Jihad hottest inside Muslim militancy. It's a book that's not written for specialists and people who've done a lot of previous reading in this field. It's written for the regular everyday newspaper reader who doesn't already know a ton about the subject. And it is a really interesting look at the subject with a ton of interviews of people you have never heard of before who are really important for understanding this. Uh, highly recommended here on The Rachel Maddow Show. funny, Jesus. That is very funny. That's what I'd do. Hey, listen, maybe I'm a bad guy, right? Maybe I'm not courageous enough. Maybe I don't understand the nobility of war enough. But I'll tell you this much. Hey, nothing on earth would make me go to Iraq. No way, no how. I don't have three kids. I don't have a wife. I don't have any excuses. Here's my excuse. It's a dumb, dumb war. And when you go there, you're not helping at all. All you're doing is hurting. Unfortunately, it's not your fault at all. But the decisions that were made by people much less bright than you, uh, in positions much, much higher than you, are going to send you off into a war where you might die for no good reason. Uh, you're not getting me to go to that. No right. way. But, of course, I think the point he was making, and I know you know this, but uh, you know, it doesn't matter that the idea is not necessarily uh, not worth dying for. Uh, you don't die for the idea. You die for the guy next to you, and you trained with him. Uh, <laughs> here, here, you know what? I, how about you live... For the guy next to you. 
How about you live for the dude living next to you in Pennsylvania? Or maybe how about the wife lying next to you in bed? How about you live for her? How about your three kids? I how about maybe I, you I, live I, I, for I, I, them? I hear you. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't besmirch that idea at all. I think it is noble. I think it is courageous. It is something I envy. I wouldn't go, and I wouldn't sign back up. But I didn't train with these guys, and if you train and your buddies go, I understand, and it, is, it makes all the sense in the world to me that you would think that that was important. And I and and there's something incredibly noble about that. It's not stupid. I understand that completely, and I'm not saying it's stupid. I'm just telling you right now, if you're out there listening, and there are a lot of you out there listening or watching in one way or another, and if you're even vaguely thinking about going to sign up for this army to go fight in Iraq, or you know anyone vaguely thinking about it, strap them down to your basement, okay? Tie them up. Do whatever you got to do. This is what my friend Bora used to tell me. He said, if I ever decide to get married again... You are to kidnap me. You uh, get some uh, a lot of duct tape. Uh, find a good dark basement. Keep me in there uh, for as long as you can. Possibly beat me at times to beat sen- some sense into me. But do not let me get remarried. Of course, later he called me and said, "Jenk, I'm getting married in ten days." I told you uh, this late in the juncture, so you couldn't get a plane ticket to come kidnap me, tie me up in a basement <laughs> with a lot of duct tape. Uh, that being said, I'm telling you, don't go to Iraq. You know, you want to say, oh, look at these liberals, discouraging people from going and serving in their country's army. Yeah, 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 yeah. You say anything you like. What I'm trying to do is save people's lives, okay? You want to go to Afghanistan? Now, if you had a choice, that'd be great. Unfortunately, these days when you sign up, you don't have a choice. If we were just fighting in Afghanistan, if we're fighting Al-Qaeda, we're fighting the Taliban, and we're chasing them down, rock and roll, I say sign up. That's a noble cause. You want to go get killed for uh, based on a bunch of lies? Bad idea. You remember those old Saturday Night Live clips? Bad idea jeans. Bad idea jeans. Love them. Still talk about them to this day. I don't know why, but that was a really, really funny segment that they did. They remember they'd have the white guys sitting around like doofuses, couldn't play basketball, and a bunch of like really tall black guys would come. They'd be like, <laughs> white guys would be like, you want to play basketball for a hundred dollars? <laughs> How about a thousand bad idea jeans? Yeah, that <laughs> okay. was funny. Yeah. You want to go die in Iraq for a threat that doesn't exist to make terrorism even worse? Bad idea jeans. <laughs> Man, this whole presidency has been one big Saturday Night Live skit. Yeah, you want to vote for George Bush for president? Bad idea. <laughs> You, you want to uh, wait five days before you go rescue people sitting on rooftops in New Orleans? Bad idea, jeans. <laughs> the whole freaking thing has been bad. As you know, as uh, Congressman Ryan said a couple of days ago on the House floor, pick an issue. Pick an issue. Pick any issue. Oh, you want to have gas prices rise and rise and you do nothing about it? Bad idea, jeans. Pick an issue. Thanks for listening, everybody. Now, I know what you've been waiting all weekends to find out. You already know what you think. Now, what did everybody else think of the best show the Best of the Left podcast has ever put out? Well, got a few responses, and picked out just a couple who, uh, you know, they kind of were indicative of the group. We've got one here from John titled WTF exclamation point. I think you can probably figure out what that means. He goes on. J, J, J.
What can I say? Question mark. I stayed up until the release of the long-awaited, incredible podcast. I've been tired and cranky all day as a result. How utterly ordinary I found the special podcast to be. Yeah. Thanks, John. And then, from Guy, simply titled, Best Show Ever, You Think? And then, we go on to Matt, who I thought was a trusted and loyal friend, uh, who I have spoken with in the past. And he writes, I wanted to let you know that Friday's show definitely met my expectations. Well, what the hell does that mean? How am I supposed to know what your expectations were? I mean, I warned you that you shouldn't have high expectations because you just end up getting disappointed. So for all I know, he lowered his expectations so far that I just met his expectations. So what does all this mean? What's the result? Basically, the conclusion I've come to is that when you consistently put out a show that ranks, you know, an average of like a 9.7, 9.8 out of 10, you know, when you have your best show ever, you know, yeah, you're going to hit that 9.9 out of 10 mark, but the difference is so imperceptible that I think, uh, you know, your, your casual listener just isn't going to pick up on it. So, I guess that's it. You know, no more best shows ever. I'll just continue on with my totally standard, you know, ridiculously fantastic work and just leave the perfection to someone else. Because... You know, it's it's obviously it's obviously wasted on uh, on such a spoiled audience, I guess, because you know you just can't appreciate it. So, do you know that feeling that you get when you're kind of walking around in the middle of the night and you don't have anything to do, so you decide to uh, go to a random house and rob the people inside? I mean, I, it's I, I wouldn't recommend it, but it, I understand the impulse. Well, there's a couple of ways to go about that. You can just barge ahead, break down the front door, you know, alert everybody to your presence. You may end up having to, you know, actually kill the occupants and then rob them. It just it, it becomes a giant mess, and it, it ends up being more than you bargained for, probably not even, you know, whatever you end up being able to steal from the house probably isn't even worth the fact that you had to kill them. It's, you know, it just gets messy. So, if you're thinking about doing that, the the way to go is... You go quiet, you go in the back door, you sneak around while no one's looking, you sneak back out again, and before you know it, you're on top of the world. 
So that's exactly what we're going to do over at Podcast Alley. Because you see the way things work in this analogy. Podcast Alley is the house. Uh, but it's it's kind of a it's kind of like a four dimensional house too, because Podcast Alley is the house, but also the month is also the house. So you have that whole time dimension as well, not just the physical, uh, not just the physical dimension. So what we're gonna do is go around the backside of the house and sneak in and now instead of um, stealing things we're gonna vote for the best of the left podcast and because you see the way things work over at podcast alley everybody just barges in the front door and starts you know mask massacring small families every month at the beginning of the month and it's it's a giant mess and what no one expects is for any do, any anyone to vote at the end of the month so pretty much it you know it's almost like the voting's done i don't think that anyone's voted for my show in like the last 2 or 3 days and my rank has stayed exactly the same because no one's voting for any other show either. So if you think that you can't make a difference, or if you think that you know voting's not that big of a deal, or it doesn't really help that much, you're completely wrong. Because I've explained in the past, but I'll do it again, because I know I've got some listeners who probably didn't hear me before. If we can get me into the top 50 instead of the top 100 or 75 or wherever I happen to be at any given moment, the chances of people seeing me in the top 50 are much greater than the top 100. And I won't go into detail again as to why that is. It, I mean, it, should, it just makes sense anyways, but it makes a special... Uh, it. it it's not even a word. It especially makes sense if you go to Podcast Alley and you kind of figure out how things work. So I am encouraging you now, go in, sneak around back, vote. Now, you, you can only vote once, so you kind of, you're in and out pretty quickly. But the key is for a lot of you to go. Vote and for the the end of the month at least will get me a little bit of uh, a little bit of recognition at least until next month and then we'll all crash down the door again well that's going to do it for today have a good day everybody by the way all those people who wrote emails uh, talking about uh, how how the show wasn't nearly as good as they uh, hoped it would be they were all being sarcastic. They all went on to talk about how fantastic the episode was. So don't write me any uh, consoling emails. Have a good one, everybody.
Hey folks, Godless Kenzer here from the podcast Watch It Burn. When I'm not out burying improvised education devices alongside conservative convoy routes, I listen to the other members of the Progressive Podcast Network at NewMediaRevolution.org. Why don't you go on over there and give them a listen? I'm sure you're going to enjoy what you hear. Progressive Podcast Network at NewMediaRevolution.org. Our IEDs blow conservative minds.